The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today I invite you to follow in your Bible or use the Pew Bible to follow as I read Acts 13. I've never preached before in this first part of Acts 13. It's one of those passages that perhaps you think doesn't have anything totally dramatic in it, and it just seems to be as though events are transitioning along. But I find that there are some things very much on point for us as a congregation to hear from this Word of God, Acts 13. I'm reading verses 1 through 12. Listen to God's Word. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, that's a city on Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist him. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came on a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell on him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May God bless his own word this morning as we seek to understand it and apply it in our lives. Today in our congregation, as I've mentioned, we will ordain some new elders and deacons and install elders and deacons and deaconesses. The deaconesses are assistants to the deacons. And you may not be aware as you hear of this happening year to year, and if you're in this service all the time, it 
admittedly is a little invisible to you, that this is an annual process. I, I added it up and, and realized with a start yesterday that takes about nine months to complete. For me as leader of our session, it's something that's very important that's going on all year long that, that you're not thinking about. And thinking that it takes nine months makes me understand. It's like the conception and birth of a baby once every year. And it takes as long. Every April, we ask you folks for the nomination of future officers. Give us names who you think are deserving, and you give us some. And then around late April and early May, the session meets together, acting as a nominating committee, and takes those names and contributes other names that the men of the session would speak up about. And we discuss and pray about those names. It's not a popularity contest. It's not who's the most successful in their job or the most prominent in the community. I can honestly tell you the discussion centers around who has gifts and temperament that would seem to incline them towards spiritual leadership. And we come out of that meeting with a list of nominees, and then elders acting in pairs spend the summer to ask those nominees if they would be willing to consider serving. Every year, some turn us down. That's something you need to know, by the way, because a lot of times we'll come with a list of nominees at the end of the year, and somebody will say, well, why is it that John Doe never is on this list? Well, it may well be that John Doe's been asked, and he declines. And folks decline sometimes because they feel they're not worthy or because their lives don't seem to allow the kind of time that they know they would need. But one way or another, we arrive in September with a list of those who need to be trained. And we have a training class in the fall for those who've been nominated. And their names aren't trumpeted yet because we're wanting to see them complete that, that class and then be interviewed by the session for their testimony and for a final confirmation that they are indeed a nominee. Then by January at the congregational meeting, now this is nine months process, you folks confirm yes or no. These folks are ones that we would want to represent us as leaders in the church. So that happens today. And we undertake the ancient rite of putting hands on the heads and shoulders of elders and deacons as we believe took place in the New Testament. And what we're doing is, as you can see, no hasty process. We certainly didn't look out at the congregation and say, you, 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 and you. There's a lot more to it than that. You know, Westminster Presbyterian Church can thank God for a wonderful blessing. We have had outstanding leadership. And I'm not polishing our buttons here or making you feel good. I'm stating a truth. We have had outstanding leadership for 45 years in the history of this church. And I think it's one of the reasons why this church has been able to continue growing throughout all of those years, why we've started four daughter congregations, and why God has blessed us in so many ways in the things that we've done. When you think about it, godly leadership is not the kind that calls attention to itself. When it's there and when it's operating as God intends, the church is blooming, the church is maturing. The church is involved in many ministries, and the leaders are not standing out in the forefront shouting, pay attention to us. 
In fact, from what I find in my activity in the presbytery and wider regions of trying to help in church conflict situations, it's the leadership that's poorly qualified or inept about the task that calls attention to itself because the church doesn't function. The church hurts. The church splits. And so we need to thank the Lord who gives us this quiet gift of good leadership. Well, today, Acts 13 is about leadership in one sense. It actually is the beginning place of a new division in Acts. If you saw almost any, any commentator's outline of Acts, he probably would start a new section at chapter 13. And there's a reason for that. We've said the pattern of Acts is built on the theme verse, Acts 1.8, that the gospel of Jesus' resurrection would go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, it has already gone. It's been in Jerusalem. It's gone to Judea. It's gone to Samaria. We saw a couple weeks ago how it made that tremendous leap when Peter uh, met with Cornelius and for the first time the apostles realized why Gentiles can even belong. And now it's taking another leap, this time primarily geographic. As the church for the first time pushes way out beyond borders of Palestine to take the gospel to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea, only 70-some miles away from land, but the first time for a planned missionary venture into Gentile territory. You might say, honestly, that modern missionary outreach had its beginning right here. This is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. The gospel is being taken now to the whole Roman world. But first we see Christian leaders being set apart by God. And then we see the, the other lesson, a two-layered lesson here, is first, how do, we, how do we identify Christian leaders? But then secondly, what those leaders do as they carry the undeniable power of the Word of God. Just on Friday when I was working on the sermon, a member emailed me a question about the Acts sermons I've been preaching, and the email caught me because it contained this phrase by this discerning member of our congregation. The phrase that they mentioned was, the victorious, unstoppable advance of the gospel in Acts. I said, right on. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm preaching about. The victorious, unstoppable gospel advance in Acts. It is we who are elders, preachers, deacons, Sunday school teachers, local ministry leaders in the church of Christ, we, we find out something when we're involved in ministry for very long, and that is that we are people serving invincible, triumphant, truth. We are simply servants of God's truth. And we can expect God to powerfully use that truth of His Word, even as our feeble minds and voices and our stumbling ways carry it forward and communicate it. Well, first of all today, I'd like you to look at the first three verses of Acts 13 and see in those verses how this point is true that only God's Spirit sets apart church leadership. God's Spirit sets apart church leadership. This takes place in Antioch, a place that's not been mentioned much. 
If you had your Bible map or a Mediterranean map in hand, you'd see that Antioch is a city north of Palestine near the Mediterranean coast, and it was the third or fourth largest city of the Roman Empire. It was a very important city. By the way, later on, it's, it's going to be told to us that Antioch is the place where believers in Christ first were called Christians. The name Christian originated in the city of Antioch. There were gathered there, we're told, numerous gifted men of God, and among them was Saul. Now, if you're perceptive, you might wonder, what happened to Saul? Because Acts 9 told us about his conversion, but then immediately he went somewhere else. He had to escape. If I remind you, in 925, he had to get out of Damascus by being let down in a basket over a wall because the king wanted to kill him. And we don't, you know, he brought, he was brought to Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem apostles weren't so sure about him. And Barnabas becomes his friend and ally, but basically Saul disappears. Now, there's 10 years of time between Acts 9 and Acts 13. What's Saul of Tarsus been doing all this time? That's a little sketchy, but we do know that there are later allusions to time that he spent in what he calls Arabia, the desert, where apparently he went out with the Word of God in his hand. Remember, he was a great student of the Old Testament before that, before his conversion. And he must have studied and been guided by others to see how all the Scriptures led in a straight line prophetically to be culminated and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God took a whole decade after this man's conversion. You would have think, well, he was so intelligent, he was so forceful, the Lord would take him as a brand new convert and throw him right into the fray as an effective apostle. Not so. Ten years, set off by himself. The Lord was preparing Saul to become Paul. And now, as we see him move to the forefront here in chapter 13, he is going to be the one that will stay in the forefront of the apostolic ministry throughout the remainder of the second half of Acts. Now, along with him, you find there was Barnabas. Good old, we want to say good old Barnabas. Barnabas is always sort of that number two figure who's so important. He encouraged. He strengthened. He was the, the bridge for volatile people like Paul to be received by the Jerusalem apostles. And then interesting name, Simeon called Niger. This was an African man, a dark-skinned man. There are those who would try to make a case that perhaps he was actually the Simon of Cyrene from the Gospels who helped the Lord. Remember, being drafted by the Romans to, when Jesus was falling with the crossbeam, they got Simon of Cyrene to carry it. Some would say this is that man. We can't prove that. It's an interesting speculation only. Then there's Lucius. We don't know much of anything about him. And curiously, a man named Manaen, and the note about him is important. It says he actually was a member of the same aristocratic household as Herod Antipas. Believers are now in the household of the Antichrist, basically. Herod Antipas, who was an enemy of the cross, and then Saul of Tarsus. Well, you get the impression that out of those five named, almost any of them might have been appointed to go in a duo to sail to Cyprus and take the gospel there. We're not told how the Holy Spirit set apart two of them. 
I don't think it would be right to speculate that there was an audible voice from heaven here. We, we would be told that if that such a thing occurred. We would assume, and I believe it's right to say, that the two names emerged as a unified verdict as these leaders prayed and sought the will of God. What should we do, Lord? And they were praying. And somehow God worked upon their minds through giving them his discernment, his Holy Spirit direction, so that a unified idea came, it ought to be Saul and Barnabas. And they agreed. Again, interesting how God brings things across my path. Just yesterday I was at the men's prayer breakfast and Reverend David Voss was there and talking about God directing in his own ministry and I wrote down something he said. He said, there's a mystery to some extent as to how God makes his ministry directions clear to us. But he said, believers who are in covenant relationship to God through Jesus Christ will find that he will direct their steps. And then I like the next part, David Voss said, he does not show us, doesn't usually show us the whole path ahead, but he tends to reveal the next step. Well, that's what happened here. God said the next step is Barnabas and Saul go to Cyprus. By the way, Barnabas was from Cyprus, so this was home territory, natural place for him to go. And then we read that these new missionaries were commissioned by the laying on of hands, an ancient practice from the Old Testament. It's how a priest was ordained in Israel as leadership, came around, prayed, and laid hands of blessing on those chosen and commissioned. I learned early on as a pastor, I used to do, you know, I'm not in the hospitals that often in our congregation's size. Pastor Urban or Pastor Light do most of that visitation, but I sure did my share for 20 years. And, and I learned early on that when I was praying with somebody who was sick or distressed or counseled with somebody and my time with them was concluded and I was going to pray, I just instinctively learned to take their hand. Or maybe to put my palm on their shoulder as I pray, or even on top of their head, whatever seemed most convenient. And it's not that I'm some kind of a priest conferring blessing. That I don't think was ever in anybody's mind. But, but there's this ancient tradition that seems to signify the blessing of the Holy Spirit applied as Christian leaders pray with folks. That we believe God in His Spirit is hearing our prayer and saying the amen, and responding, and hearing our pleas and our cries, and that he anoints those for whom we pray, not falsely with some kind of oil of blessing or something, but but with himself, with his presence. It's like here you might think of the church as being, uh, we had flutes playing for us this morning. The church was was a flute, a, a metal instrument, but it needed the Holy Spirit to blow that skilled breath and make the music and say, these are the two I have chosen as the church prayed and looked and longed to do ministry. We believe that God speaks through praying leadership to channel the Holy Spirit's voice and his will. He doesn't have to shout from heaven and say, do this, here's the one, normally at least, He speaks through the decisions of consecrated, praying believers in the church. 
Well, then we see this gospel setting off with Paul and Barnabas for the first time. It was just a 70-mile trip to Cyprus. But not only has the Holy Spirit set apart leaders, now I would tell you in the second place here, the text tells us that the Spirit arms those spiritual leaders for ministry opposition. Paul and Barnabas began to preach about Christ, and they moved across the island of Cyprus, and they no sooner came to the place where the Roman officer who really had the government of the whole island was, Sergius Paulus, he was a a proconsul, an officer of fairly high rank. But uh, there was an obstacle in the way. There was a guy who had attached himself to Sergius Paulus like a parasite, like a leech, to get attention to himself and to be able to exercise a self-promoting career as a so-called prophet. Whether he actually ever prophesied anything that happened or not, you know, you, as a prophet, you only have to hit like one time in four to build a reputation. Oh, you know, he predicted that blank. It doesn't matter that he predicted four other things that didn't happen. Somebody says, oh, that man's a prophet. Well, that's the kind of man that Elimas whose nickname was Bar-Jesus, nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a common name in that day. His father's name was Jesus. Elamas, Bar-Jesus, had this reputation as a sorcerer and a fortune teller, and he certainly didn't want the truth of God coming in to confuse people who would turn from him and his phony prophet occupation to hear true prophecy from God. You know, it's a common thing. Missionaries often report this in areas of the world, especially primitive areas where the gospel has never been or or has not been heard much. When they go in, there's a stirring up. When the gospel is first announced in a new place, there's often a stirring up of the occult powers. You name almost any part of the world, and this is true. It's the same phenomenon Jesus found when he began in his ministry, and we read of the demonic exorcisms that he did. The Gospel of Mark is studded with these in the early part of his ministry. As if the truth of God and the light of God penetrates, and and all of a sudden, you know, it's like going into a cave with with torchlight, with flashlight beams, and all the bats are going to fly out. Well, I think of Elamas as a bat, a message of the Antichrist who did not want the truth of Christ to come in. And you might say, well, Paul was really rough on this guy. Why didn't he try a gentler reasoning approach with him or something? Because he really shows great anger from verse 9 and following as he speaks to Elamas. He rebukes him. He calls this shyster a son of the devil and sentences him to be temporarily blinded. Remember, Paul was blinded at his conversion for a time. God took away his natural sight in the glory of of seeing Christ, and it was days before he was able to see things again. And here he was now speaking courageously and strongly to this man, and he did this, the text says, filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's claimed that this wasn't just Paul having a temper tantrum. This was the Holy Spirit addressing the Antichrist spirit of Elamas. Just as Jesus spoke soothingly and kindly and compassionately to many people who were just confused or did not understand his message, but he spoke 
Woe unto you to people like the Pharisees who represented evil and knew better in what they were saying. Elamas was not a man who was going to receive soft tactics. He was an enemy of the things of God. Well, we might ask the question, why did God commission this new ministry, clearly selected them to go, charged them to go to Cyprus? They went forth in in big, hopeful spirits. You would think the Lord would give them a sweeping revival on Cyprus or something, not immediately an, an opposition like this not an obstacle in their way like this that, that sounded and smelled an awful lot like it came from Antichrist. I would say this. I believe this event teaches us that the truth of God is always going to be opposed by the lies of Satan. Always. Either in strong ways or small ways. But what we will find is that a lie cannot live in the face of gospel truth. Not for long. And we have to learn this and discover this ourselves as we face the opposition of this world and of the evil one. You know, it's real easy for us as Christians to think that the invitation to follow Christ is an invitation to a life of ease and peace. And indeed, there is peace in, in knowing Christ. There is rest in knowing Christ. But don't misinterpret that to think that being a Christian is all about conflict avoidance. Because as a matter of fact, being a Christian and speaking and loving the truth of God is going to put you in more conflict than you've ever known in any other way in your life. You just, even as a layman or laywoman, speak in gentle ways, witness about your faith, or, or I'm trusting God for that, or something like that, a comment to a relative or a neighbor, and you're going to invite opposition. And certainly there's a time for us to be gentle and compassionate with non-Christians who do say negative things about the Lord if, if the issue is that they're only confused or ignorant. But when they're speaking in a determined way, as Elamos apparently was, Paul saw into this man's heart and saw Satan was there and rebuked the enemy of God with a stinging condemnation. We can expect various kinds of opposition. I can see a few in our congregation have been very active in the right to life movement here in Lancaster. Do you know what opposition is? Of course you do. I see Dr. Rapp here who's worked to forward the gospel in the Hungarian lands where much of his primary opposition comes from those who in some name anyway are the liberal adherents to the Protestant Reformation who say, oh, no, no, those occultists led by Rapp in America, do away with them. Dr. Rapp certainly knows, and his young men he's trained in the Hungarian lands know what opposition is. It's like we could say Murphy's Law is going to apply to ministry. Nothing is as easy as it looks. Everything takes longer than we think it should. And if anything can go wrong, it probably will. The only time that opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ will fully cease for anyone who ministers or upholds his name bravely in this world. The only time the opposition is going to cease is either when we are in the grave or Jesus returns. The Christian life is a calling to strife with unbelief. 
And you'd notice a little fact here that Acts 13, 13, you could easily miss this. If I take you one verse into the part I didn't read that says John, that's John Mark, same man who wrote the Gospel of Mark, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Doesn't explain why, but it would seem a very reasonable assumption that John Mark, the young man, hadn't bargained for the kind of opposition that was involved in ministry in Christ's name. Will we be John Mark? Will we stop witnessing the minute somebody resists, the minute somebody labels us a fundamentalist, somebody makes a sarcastic comment or gives you an argument? Will we say, oh, I didn't think the gospel was going to be opposed? It will be opposed. And what you need to do is pray that God would make you wise to see the deceits of Satan. Just as you pray for pastors and missionaries and elders and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and leaders of ministries to stand firm against powers that would try to distract or divide God's church away from upholding the truth. Opposition is inevitable. Sometimes it comes from nominal members of the church. Next Sunday night, I'm going to be in a congregational meeting, not of this church, where a large number of the people would happily banish their pastor and send him trotting out of town. And they're making a motion to do that. There, the opposition is right from within the congregation. I'm not saying that pastor's perfect. But the gospel is being opposed. Here's Elamas, a false prophet, who supposedly, though, could foretell the future. Look how he ends up temporarily blinded so that he needs somebody to lead him out of the room because he can't even see where he's going. God will triumph over opposition to his gospel. God's word will triumph in the end. So finally, I come to that point in Acts 13 here. Thirdly, the Spirit of God makes God's Word triumphant. Last time in in Acts 12, we saw Herod Agrippa dying in a rather gruesome way. Apparently had intestinal parasites and died with great pain in his gut for days, as the secular witnesses say. Now, or, or at the end of that time, it says that the king died, and notice the conclusion of that. Acts 12, 24, if you just look back for a minute, it says, the word of God increased and what? Multiplied. The evil king is dead and the word of God is multiplying. Now what's the end of this section of opposition from Elamas? It comes a little more subtly, but stated in thirteen twelve that here the cultured Roman leader Sergius believes the gospel message. It says he is astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was saved. He received the truth of Christ. And he was amazed by it, how powerful this word of truth was. God's truth laid him low. The Spirit of God makes God's word triumphant, folks. And all the principles that are exhibited in this text apply to the church today. We need to understand and trust that it is the Spirit of God who, when God's people pray, when his elders pray, when his congregation prays, give us good leadership. He speaks through praying, searching, pleading people to answer that 
and sets apart those who ought to lead. Not those who win the popularity contest, but those who've been gifted and those who already bow low in their lives to serve Christ. Secondly, the Spirit of God goes before our ministry, just as he did for Paul and Barnabas on Cyprus. Antagonistic obstacles will come. Problems will come. Some of those problems will make us grind our teeth or maybe even be afraid and and think, oh, goodness, we shouldn't be doing this. But those problems, you see, can be God's tests to see, will my leaders go forward? Will they trust me? Will they follow my word? Because God's word will succeed. We're only servants of that word. As a pastor, I'm not here because of learning, because of experience, because of giftedness. I'm here because of this. This has power. All I really need to do is tell you what this says, and that's all I actually do most Sundays, is try to tell you what this says. And if God is going to change you, if God is going to make our church effective, it's going to be because of this inherent, transcendent, triumphant power that's in his word. Do we have politicians against our message? God brought Herod down in a horrible way in a matter of days, and he can do it again, and he will do it again. Do we have troublesome people in our situation, in our milieu, maybe even in our congregations, who raise obstacles, who carp and complain, who sarcastically criticize God can deal with them as he dealt with Elamas. Ladies and gentlemen, we who serve the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning, know that the truth we preach is triumphant truth. It might even be that some of us who are messengers would suffer for preaching that truth. James died for it. So we're not saying that every messenger is going to be even spared from death necessarily. But God's truth will be triumphant even if we die in the process. And our death is not an ultimate tragedy for God who holds us in his eternal hand. So know this, folks. No leader in the kingdom of our Lord flies solo. We take the gospel to an antagonistic world together as a praying body of believers through whom God speaks, among whom God sets apart leadership. We are chosen, we are equipped by God to speak an omnipotent word, an unconquerable gospel. And it was Jesus, the supreme king himself, who promised those who do this task, I will be with you to the very close of the age. What a wonderful guarantee we have as we minister in the name of Jesus Christ. Our Father, thank you for this because if we estimated how things are going in your ministry in this world, we would look at human beings, we would look at fallen leadership We would look at evangelicals of national reputation with deep moral failings in their lives and stains upon them. We would look at ourselves and say, who is adequate to this task? 
But we thank you that we don't have to be adequate. Your word is. And you take common clay vessels, you put your word in it, and you send it forth, and you bring back the results that you planned to take place. We're humbled, Lord, to be part of this. I pray for those who lead in your church, both this congregation and many places. There are discouraged leaders this morning. There are people under attack, people who feel blocked. They are gifted and and charged and educated and ready to proclaim your truth and see lives transformed, and all they see are menacing faces everywhere they turn. Encourage those who are most under the opposition of the evil one and defeat him, that your word may be triumphant, that lives may be changed, that heaven may be opened, and hell be barred to many souls who you've determined to have for yourself. Thank you for the power in your word. We stand on it. We go forward in it. In Jesus' name, amen.